Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. Don't you think about everyone and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host Lori LeBay and I'm thrilled you can be here with us today. If you liked our music it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people making a difference. So maybe, just maybe, you can be our next guest. Now, before we get into our conversations, um, and we're going to be talking about breathing and how that can just make such a huge, huge difference in our lives, I want to do a couple of shout outs. So first, if you haven't been to our new website, uh, well, same website, we just updated, go to alzheimerspeaks.com. There you will find a page that has information on free educational resources You can download, watch videos. There's all kinds of different things there. So check that out. Also, if you're looking to hire a keynote speaker or do some consulting, I'm available for that or some marketing and branding as well. If you're not familiar with Saltbox TV, please check them out. They are a free online streaming service that was designed specifically for our senior market. And they just have a wide variety of information there. And if you are a family looking to go on vacation yet this summer, take advantage of the memory camp. It's in Wisconsin and on Moon Beach, and it's August 15th to the 18th, and it's for people living with dementia as well as their care partners. It's a wonderful time to explore your family, your dynamics, have some fun, get to meet some other people as well. We are going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner, and we will be right back. I love the footbar walker, and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. Okay, so we are going to be talking about the way breath can change your life, and we're going to learn how to live our best lives. And we are lucky to have with us today, Lori Ellis Young and George Ellis, who are co-authors of the book, 
Breath is life. Taking in and letting go how to live well, love well, and be well. George is a clinical psychologist, and Lori is the founding director of Breathe the Change LLC and co-founder of the nonprofit Breath Logic. They are both impassioned with sharing breath literacy, and they have worked with diverse groups all around the world. So Lori and George, I am so excited to have you guys on the show today. The work that you are doing is absolutely fabulous. And I think there's so many people that don't understand what you're doing and how easy it is to bring into their life and and calm things down. But before we get into the nitty gritty of all you're doing, let's talk about um, if you have been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends. And George, I'm going to have you go first, if you don't mind. No, not at all. But first, I just want to say thank you so much, Lori, for having (laughs) us. This is a a real treat. Um, Actually, quite a bit, My both my grandmother, who was born and raised in Greece, and my father, who was, he loves to say, conceived in Greece, but born here, <laughs> um, both contracted Alzheimer's. And I'm going to tell a brief story just to sort of be illustrative of the possibility that sometimes not everybody in the family knows that some family members actually have Alzheimer's or want to share it because of shame or some other experience. So my, my uncle, who was the caregiver for my grandmother, called my sister and said, hey, will you come over and keep your grandmother um, company while I go do something? And my sister says, sure, cool, let's do it. So she went over and she, and she you know, sat with my grandmother. She spoke with her for about an hour. They were chatting back and forth. And then my grandmother stopped for a second, looked at my sister and said, who are you, dearie? She had no clue who she was. She was, and that was when we learned that um, my grandmother had Alzheimer's. My uncle was so did not want us to think of our grandmother differently, and as a result, didn't tell us. So we couldn't support him, and we couldn't support her. Wow, and and that is more common than you know people want to believe. Uh, with that. And it's, it's so important for us to have these conversations and to be honest, because gosh, for somebody to be taken back by that, and they're all alone, and yet they're with the person, and what do they do with all those emotions? It, it's really an important conversation to have. So thank you for, for bringing that up and sharing that. Lori, how about you? Uh, and my parents did not have, have Alzheimer's. My dad died at almost at 90 years old and he did have some forgetfulness. I mean, he called all seven kids Deary. So we knew he couldn't remember our names, but George's dad was the closest person that I experienced uh, someone with, with dementia and we were living overseas for like 20 years. So we only saw him once a year, yeah. usually. Very and sporadically. You could see the decline. And uh, one story, actually, I'd love to share about him is, mm-hmm. Lori, I love that on your website, you have a photo with Barbara Lee Friedman and your mother and music. And I learned the power of music with Alzheimer's patients because of Barbara Lee. And George's dad loved to sing. 
And one of the last times that I was with him, we sang for over an hour together one song. And it was John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. So do you know that song? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so if you, you know, if you do it normally, it takes maybe 15 seconds to do. But he did it with such just meaning with every word, except for the da-da-da-da-da, gratefully, so he went fast on that. It took us over a minute per repetition, but we did it for 66 times. And all during that time, he taught me so much about mindfulness, Lori, and MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. We're both um, students and instructors of MBSR. So he was in the present. And he was alive. He was very alive. And my father was very advanced form of dementia. And there are many ways where he was, you know, I mean, kind of out of it and not really very present. And but with when they were singing, he was alive and present, and there was real joy in his face. So and he did each repetition with beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was it was a really precious, precious experience with him. Well, you know, it's funny is what that song triggered to me was being in Brownies and Girl Scouts. And we were just all into that song, too, just probably how your dad was, you know, and and it was because it was it was presented us, you know, to be fun, to get your whole body into it. And it was just a really joyful thing. And that's one of the things with dementia is, you know, they remember the emotional attachment to mm-hmm. something. And, and, you know, that's one of the things we have to focus on. Now, Lori, I want to ask you about breath literacy. Mm-hmm. What the heck is it? <laughs> and, and how does it apply to dementia and caregiving? Okay, well, breath literacy has three components to it. Number one is the realization that breath is life. So if you have ever been with anybody as they've taken their first breath, or they've taken their last breath, or if you've checked on a loved one to see if they're still breathing, and you know the magnificence or the gravity of that statement, whether they're still breathing or not, right? Mm -hmm. It's so poignant. So with that, it's to understand that the quality of our breath directly impacts the quality of our lives. I mean, isn't that logical? Yeah. So the second is is to learn the how to integrate the wisdom and the knowledge of how to breathe optimally, moment by moment, breath by breath, and in circumstances all throughout life. Like when you receive a diagnosis, your loved one receives a diagnosis that's going to be life-changing. In many, many different ways. How do you breathe through those changes? And then also understanding that our breathing is both an art and a science. So George will speak to the science, but the art, (laughs) the art is how do we integrate correct ways of breathing and different ways of breathing, the practice of breathing, breath awareness into our daily lives that makes it artful, that makes it fun, that makes it beneficial. And just to carry that forth a little bit, 
um, how breath literacy is directly related to to dementia and Alzheimer's is maybe a direction people might not predict. What breath does, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, what breath does is it directly affects the nervous system. So as we utilize our breath and, and learn to breathe optimally, uh, the importance of breath awareness and some of the techniques, what we do is we basically can learn to soothe our own nervous system. And as we soothe our nervous system, as we begin to be more aware and active, we also are then able to shift from maybe a state of stress to feeling more calm and grounded. And that is sort of in many ways the essence of our book, which is self-care is other care. The better we care for ourselves, and the, the issue with people who deal with chronic illness, Alzheimer's, dementia, MS, is that so much burden is on them and sometimes there's so much stress. I'm overwhelmed, I can't do it, I'm alone. All of those issues. And so self-care through breath and other strategies is the best way to care for others. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think sometimes too, when we talk about self-care, people think, I'm going to leave the house. <laughs> I'm just going to get out of here. <laughs> you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to escape. And then, but then they're like, well, I don't have time. I can't do that. And, and then they feel even more pressure. And so one of the things we're going to learn today is, you know, your breath goes with you guys, wherever you are. You know, if you're crouched down, hiding out, you know, you locked yourself in the bathroom, driving in the car, wherever you might be, your breath is with you. And it can bring you, which I loved you talking about, this groundedness, this peacefulness, because in the world we're in today, everybody needs to be able to access that because we are in cray-cray times. And then you add a, a chronic illness on top of that. And it can be really, really traumatic on multiple levels. So thank you for, for that. Now, um, George, you had talked about, you know, self-care is other care. In terms of dementia and Alzheimer's, I'm a firm believer that what's good for dementia is good for the world. And that dementia care needs to be simplified. And I think self-care needs to be simplified. So so it's not another daunting task that we feel like we can't do where we don't have time to do. So what would you like to add to that? Well, I want to come back and, and support something you said earlier, which was that you don't have to leave the house to go and take care of yourself. <laughs> and the other piece I want to add is a lot of people feel that if self-care is selfish, mm -hmm. It's like, I don't have a right to do that because I have to take care of my mom or my dad or my uncle or my child. And what we really need to do is really have people hear that self-care is actually care for others. It's an act of altruism. It's an act of unselfishness. If I care for me, if I take care of me, I will better be able to support you, hear you, be patient with you. <laughs> and so I wanted to, I wanted to just support everything you said and just add that piece. And that is really important. And I, I, that took me a while to learn. Mm -hmm. And I had, and, and some of my listeners have heard this story, but I'll bring it up just so it, I think it'll, it'll flow into this conversation. I had girlfriends that wanted me to go out to coffee every single week. And I kept blowing them off and blowing them off. I didn't have time. I have this long, big list. I'm working full time. I'm taking care of 
you know, my mom with dementia, my dad with brain cancer, I've got a child at home, I've got extra people living in my house as it is. I mean, you know, I kept volunteering, just the typical person who doesn't give anything up, you just keep piling on. And so one day, the girls called and said, you know, come on, come to coffee. And very snottily, I said, I'll give you 10 minutes of my time, like, like roll out the red carpet. Here I come. I'm going to bless you today with my presence. And I, and I go to Panera and I, and I had every intention of going in, saying hi and leaving and getting them off my back. That was my goal. And I ended up staying for two hours and we laughed and we cried. And what I I think happens to so many people who care or who are chronically ill Mm -hmm. is that we don't realize that our soul is depleted and until somebody or something fills us. And I think breath is a way to fill us back up. And it's something that we can control, that it doesn't have to cost us any money to do. It really can take very little time. And in an instant, things can change. Your outlook, your mindset, your blood pressure, all of those types of things. And I don't think people understand the impact that the nervous system goes through when we leverage breath. So I know, George, you're kind of the scientific one on this side. So why don't you take that a little bit deeper and, um, and we'll go from there. Well, before we, before we can really talk much about the nervous system in depth, mm-hmm. we need to talk a little bit about stress. Mm-hmm. Stress itself. What is stress? We bannered around all over the place. I'm stressed. It's a stressful moment. But what is it really? Okay. And so what I want to talk, there's, there's, there's positive stress and we all have it. Okay. Positive stress is essentially, it, it, it motivates me. Stress can motivate. Mm-hmm. We get, um, we can motivate to go out and dance. We can motivate to get degrees. We can motivate to do great podcasts. <laughs> we can motivate to do all sorts of wonderful things. It only starts to shift over to being, to being stress that becomes really unhealthy adversely affecting our nervous system, our immune system, blood pressure, et cetera, blood sugar levels. That happens when we begin to feel that we can't manage the stress, that we can't manage all the tasks that we have to do. And then that kicks in, that triggers a couple of different survival responses that are ancient. Before I do that, though, I just want to kind of ask you, Lori, you spent... 25, 30 years caring for your mother, who had, I'm sure, went through all the stages of dementia. Mm -hmm. What was that like? And what were some of the stressors you experienced? (laughs) What what wasn't there? One of the things I have to say is that I liked that you talked about stress can be a good thing. And sometimes we call that excitement or a little nervousness. Um, but we, we have a different mind frame with that. But stress when we're, when we're caregiving is that feeling of overwhelmed, not being enough, not having enough time, money, or energy. I mean, it could be on multiple levels. So all of a sudden, I was a really you know healthy person. And then all of a sudden, I go into the doctor, I'm getting a little anxiety for the edge, you know, because I found myself maybe being a little snappy um, at times, maybe just feeling a little down because I'm, I'm overwhelmed. And so I might just start bawling out of nowhere going, Where, where'd that come from? And it's like, 
well, your top's going to burst if you don't let this out. So here it comes, inappropriate space or not, you're crying. (laughs) All of a sudden I had high blood pressure. You know, they're talking about that. I'm like, I've never had high blood pressure. What, what is this all about? So there, there were moments of where I would just want to explode with anger. I'm 63. So I felt when I was raised that women were just supposed to handle this. Little girls are supposed to handle the family and keep everybody happy and together. And so that's the role I played. And so every time somebody had a problem, okay, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. And I turned into this fixer. And I didn't realize all the the pressures I was taking on in other people's lives. Now, let me say this. When I was caring for my folks, I loved caring for them. I would do it a zillion times. But what happens to a lot of care partners, too, is you look really good in that role. So (laughs) others start going, you know what? I got a problem, too, Lori. Why don't you take that on? And all of a sudden, you're, you're like this dumpster where everybody drops stuff off, you fix it, and you don't have any time for yourself because you're too busy processing everybody else's, I'm going to say shit, because that's when you really recognize what's going on. That's what it is. Uh, In a lot of areas, uh, you have no time to take care of yourself. And, and so, you know, it comes into just your whole self identity. Who are you anymore? I can't participate in things that I used to do because there's not enough time or I can't leave and there's no one else to step in. Um, Loneliness, the, the list is long. And that's probably just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. Well, you actually, you actually beautifully illustrated two, there are two survival states, okay, Mm -hmm. that have evolved over hundreds of millions of years, you illustrated them both. And we often do go back and forth. The oldest one is called freeze. Mm -hmm. It's called the freeze state. It's when the nervous system shuts down and basically tries to disappear. Imagine, imagine predators 500 million years ago eating, you know, smaller animal. And so what was best? Disappearing, shutting down, not moving. And, and the, the psychological correlate of that, Lori, is I can't. I'm overwhelmed. I'm helpless. I'm powerless. I can't do it. And that is a a huge fertile ground for depression, sadness, a profound sense of loss. And that is what so many people caring for loved ones do experience at times, is that sense of freeze. And that's that's how what people do is we often contract. And then our breath contracts and it becomes much less, very shallow, usually high. And so, That's one of the two survival states. The other survival state is fight or flight, which probably most people in your audience are very familiar with. (laughs) Um, uh, It's the opposite of freeze. Mm -hmm. It's an I can state rather than an I can't state. It's I'm going to do something. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight the enemy or I'm going to run away, run away. But either way, adrenaline, cortisol, the hormones are rushing through the body and and you're trying to get things done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you would argue, well, that's great. Let's get things done. Except what happens when they're never done? And that's yeah. what you described, Lori, when you started to share it is you're fighting, fighting, fighting. You're fighting to try to save people. You're trying to protect people. Yet 
you're never done fighting. Yep. In the, in the wilderness, when these when these survival mechanisms and and responses evolved, it was ninety seconds, one hundred and twenty seconds of screaming terror. Either I get away, or I beat them up, or I'm dead. Mm-hmm. Here, you're talking years of supporting others in as they gradually through time decline. So these two survival states can end up becoming chronic. And what Lori was trying to talk about when she shared about breath literacy was that we can utilize breath to actually trigger a third state. The first two are triggered by fear. Okay, the last trigger, last state that evolved was triggered by a sense of safety, a sense mm-hmm. of being grounded and present sense of caring for self. And as we use the breath consciously and openly, we can begin to use it as if it were a salve and shift ourselves out of either the I can't state or the I can, but I'm not able to state Mm -hmm. to a sense of, okay, I'm here. I'm available. I'm present. I may need some support. I can reach out for that support. It's not a place of isolation. It's a place of connection to self and to others. So when we talk about managing the nervous system, we're talking about consciously utilizing breath to shift out of a survival state and into a state where we thrive, mm-hmm. where we where breath is life. Okay. In listening to what you both said, what comes up for me in regards to breath is that, Lori, you shared that you had high blood pressure. So with that, it was obvious that you were breathing either very shallowly, probably holding your breath a lot, mm-hmm. and and you had it in your upper chest, which is the type of breathing that when George was describing the fight or flight, is your reptilian, your hindbrain is in charge, and it's going to help you survive. You know, you're you're going to you're going to barely survive sometimes. But it's not that good at helping us thrive. Right. So the one of the simple things to do with breath literacy, the, the simple but yet so powerful things to know, is that you want to get your breath not high and not fast. Mm-hmm. You want to bring it low and slow. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, uh, Quick story I will share about my mother, who was a nurse. She couldn't understand why I was interested in breath. She was like, I learned how to breathe, and I never learned about breath in nurses' training. And she never took any medication at all until she was about 80. And then she had high blood pressure. And I was home once watching her take nervously, take her blood pressure about four times an hour. So it occurred to me if I showed her something tangible, it might mean something to her. So I had her take my blood pressure and she said, oh, Lori, what wonderful blood pressure you had. Thank you, mom. Now look what happens to my blood pressure when I breathe the way that you are breathing which was very shallow and very high in her upper chest. So I did that. And between 60 and 90 seconds later, she saw when she took my blood pressure again that it had gone up. So then I said she was really surprised. She saw it, tangible evidence. And so then I said, now, Mom, look what happens 
when I breathe low and slow and get the breath in my belly. So I did that. Another 90 seconds later, she saw that my blood pressure had gone down. And she said, Lori, can you show me how to do that? So the thing is that our breath changes our brain by being, you know, when we feel stress, we either hold our breath or we breathe rapidly. When we consciously make our breath slower and low in our belly, physiologically, you cannot be in a state of full-on panic if you are breathing in your belly. It's impossible because the breath changes the brain, the brain changes the nervous system. It all is beneficial to the body. I, I work with people all over the world, many soldiers, um, former police, etc. And the two breaths that I teach, one of them is low, slow belly breath. It and the other is a relaxation breath. And both these breaths help shift state. In other words, it helps shift us out of a survival state and move us into a thriving state, a state where we're grounded and present. So Lori has a story that I love her to tell. <laughs> I try to tell it and she, well, she's underwhelmed. So I want Lori to tell a story that sort of emphasizes the importance of breath just for people just to hear this. Well, actually it's, it's a story, you know, um, when I first started talking to people about breath, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there weren't a lot of uh, articles about breath or books on breath. And so I had to really convince people that their breath was important. Yeah. And it's changing now. It's, you it's still do, though, too. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. But, but it is still changing. The general public and the medical professions are realizing how important breath is. But so depending upon the audience, whether it's kids or whether it's adults, um, I talk about how the brain, the breath, and the heart, mm -hmm. they get together to talk about which one of them is most important for the health and well-being of whether it be children, whether it be caregivers, whether it be people with a diagnosis, so the population. So, of course, they go into a bar. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a juice bar and sometimes it's a pub. <laughs> and in, when we were in Ukraine, it was, of course, a pub, a pub. And the brain always had a vodka, right? And said, I'm the most important. I control everything. And then the heart, of course, has a vodka too. But loving the color red, it's with tomato juice. Bloody Mary. And says, ah, dear brain, yes, you are so important. You might be IQ, but I'm EQ, and I'm also the motor and the center of compassion. I'm the most important. So then the breath, no matter where, always puts down a glass of oxygen-rich water <laughs> and decides not to prove its merit in words and just goes out the door. So what happens then to the brain and the heart? They realize that the breath is vital to everything they do. So they call, breath, breath, come back, come back. And the breath says humbly, yes, I am the most important. And though, what's important is that you realize how well I function determines how well you function and the entire body functions. So that's a story that seems to 
make people think, hmm, maybe there's something here. Resonates. It's, it's so important that we understand the impact of this and, and how in sync our whole body is with the, the variable parts. You know, and with dementia, especially those who have vascular dementia, it's important that they get that oxygen to the brain. You know, that's one of the pushes for exercise to help push that oxygen to the brain. I also like that you had mentioned kids in there too, because again, I think this can be taught at every single age, every single culture. It's just something free and easy once we accept it. Mm -hmm. And I think where we have hurdles is, you know, when you were talking about the freeze, people use different terms. Some people might say they feel stuck or they feel paralyzed. And I know when I get like that, I can... I can lay in my bed and my breath can get so shallow and so slow that I'm like, am I really even still alive? Because it's just so little compared to what a normal breath would be. And I've been, you know, able to go to a couple of Lori's classes and the difference that it makes. I actually teach that in some of my classes now to take 11 deep breaths in and take 11 deep breaths out and see how you are physically feeling different. And I've never had anybody say, I don't, I don't feel a difference. I know this much compared to what the two of you know, but again, that's how easy it is to apply. And I guess that's why I wanted to, to bring that up and, and realize that as you learn these things, I hope people are liking and clicking and sharing this video because it is so important. It's so vital to all of us to find that calmness and that peace. The other thing, you know, when you asked, you know, what were some of my symptoms? They went away after I wasn't caring for my folks anymore. All of a sudden, I didn't have asthma. I didn't have high blood pressure. Oh, how could that be? You know, (laughs) what, what happened? Well, you know, my experience changed. And at that point, I hadn't really learned the depths of breath. And the differences, it was just removing some of that stress. And I kind of went back to my, my old ways, because I think, I think so many people just take breathing for granted. It's kind of like music. Well, music can't have that big of an impact. I mean, we listen to it all the time until they witness it like your mom with the breath and see that physical change or feel that physical change within that. Let's talk about real world practice in terms of if somebody is feeling stressed, what can you share maybe an example of what they could do to shift that stress and heaviness that they're feeling? Well, I I can start. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, I think there, uh, we'll just start with the breath Laurie taught, which okay. is um, a low and slow belly breath, mm-hmm. um, an even keel, just a, a way to really begin. It absolutely, you can do this in the car. Mm-hmm. Let's say to let's say you're angry because somebody cut you off, or you can do this when you feel impatient. When you feel because impatience and anxiety mm-hmm. are all threats. And it's you shifting into a survival state. So you can, if one of the arts of this work, not just the science, but the arts of this work, is to begin to identify what state am I in? Mm-hmm. Am I in freeze? Okay. Well, then what do I need to do? I want to stay in freeze? Do I want to stay paralyzed and stuck? Hmm. Or I'm in fight or flight. Do I want to stay anxious? Do I want to stay fighting and angry, impatient? So when I notice I'm in those states, that's the art. 
That's when breath awareness comes in uh, and some of the breath techniques, a low and slow breath will help us shift our state. And as and we can do that, nobody ever even knows we're doing it. We might mm -hmm. be supporting our parent or working with a, a patient. They don't need to know we're doing it. Mm -hmm. But we're consciously choosing to shift out of a survival state mm -hmm. into a thrive state. You know, you mentioned the word impatient. And in all my support groups that I do and talking to people all around the world, um, mm -hmm. dealing with dementia, the number one thing people ask for is patience. Oh, yep. It's, and, and I think that expands to everybody. You know, if you ask them, you know, uh, what do they need to learn more of? It's patience. And so being able to, to get in that state where you're not feeling so panicky, where you're not feeling so out of control, where you're not ready to snap, which then all of a sudden it's like, Whoa, where'd that come from? Well, it's because you're not taking care of yourself and you're not even consciously realizing the changes in your own body. Right. And once you learn to regulate that, it's really, I have found it easy to diffuse mm -hmm. and come back and just feel better, not only in terms of how I'm breathing, but I just feel better as a person that I am better able to cope that I am better able to rationalize and figure out what's my path. Yeah. Well, and just a quick addition is that um, we've talked about freeze and, um, and fight or flight as the two survival states. The name of the state for what we're talking about where we thrive is called social engagement. Mm -hmm. And that really means being <laughs> able to connect to others Mm -hmm. empathy, compassion, but also connect to ourselves a little bit about what you were talking about, learning how to self-soothe, mm -hmm. bringing self-compassion into our lives. Because mm -hmm. we're often compassionate towards others all the time, and then we get burnt out. Yeah. And then we feel guilty about being and burnt out. And impatient. And impatient. <laughs> and then suddenly we feel shame about, well, then I'm not enough, and I'm not a good caretaker. And suddenly it's like, well, wait, though. We can use our breath to self-soothe. We can use our breath to help be more compassionate to ourselves. The way we are trying to be compassionate to a child who hurts themselves or to, to someone who we're trying to give care to. Mm -hmm. And so in, in talking about impatience, I'm so glad you brought up impatience because really it's it starts uh, when you're impatient, you're what I call IQ, your irritation quotient <laughs> goes up. And actually, we have a chapter in our book, how to raise your HQ, your happiness quotient or your healthiness quotient by lowering your IQ, your irritation quotient. So to catch yourself before you start to get really, really frustrated, which comes from the impatience or angry or stressed out. And there are three things that come up to share with it. First is to go back to the belly breath. And I would actually love to ask you to do it with me. Okay. And is when we breathe, we usually have more control over our exhalation than our inhalation. So to start with the belly breath, we're always going to breathe through the nose, inhaling, sometimes exhaling through the mouth and sometimes exhaling through the nose, but always inhaling through the nose. So to inhale and then to exhale after you've taken a breath and contract 
your belly. Squeeze it like you're pulling it straight towards your spine. And then let the inhale be a relaxed expansion and a little more if you can. And then the exhale, blow out through your mouth. Pull it in, squeeze, 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 squeeze. And then let it expand a little more if you can. And then again, through the mouth, hum, squeezing. And then another full breath. So to play with that, making it both low and slow, focusing on the exhalation through the nose and then through the mouth with different sounds. So if again, if you inhale and then exhale, ha. <laughs> squeeze, 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 squeeze. And then do you notice anything about the inhale, Lori? Well, it is interesting because you, I think most of us don't know how much we can take in. Right. You, you know, and so it's like, okay, I got a breath. And then, and then when you say, no, take in a little bit more. And then, and every time it's kind of amazing how much more you can take in. And I'm sure divers and swimmers have learned this technique long ago, but it's a good thing for all of us to learn. Plus when you are exhaling too, I mean, you are, I would imagine having some control over stomach muscles and things like that too, in terms of toning, which everyone's always looking for that. So that's probably an extra little bonus in there too (laughs) with it, but it is amazing how much we don't exhale, you know, when you're like, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more. And I, you know, I think it, I think it just kind of shocks you the first few times you try it in terms of what is really possible. And as you do it over time, you're able to take in even more oxygen and then exhale even more. You know? And also, as you think of the exhale, the physical benefits of the exhale, you're engaging the diaphragm, mm-hmm. you're working your abs you are um, getting, you're, you're utilizing the lower back lobes of the lungs more when you're breathing in the belly. And that's where most of our blood sits to be oxygenated. Oh. And, but yet there's the dynamic also, the exhale is the letting go, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and there's so much that we need to let go of, let go of, let go of, just let go of, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, you know, um, energetics, let go. And then so we can take in new, fresh prana, life force, oxygen that will regenerate us, mm-hmm. rejuvenate well, us. And I, I do want to add one thing for, for, for mm-hmm. you and for people watching. One of the reasons, one of the reasons that it um, works so effectively, besides what Laura just talked about, was the breath can tell us, tell our body we're safe. Okay. Or the breath can tell our body we're in danger. So, for an, for instance, right now, if I asked you to breathe fast and shallow, my guess is your body would start to feel anxious and scared yep. because you're almost telling it, "Well, wait." There's a danger. There must be something out there to hurt me. So it gets prepared for battle or to shut down. So what the breath does, low, slow, 
and it full of contractions and it tells the body you're safe. Mm-hmm. You're not in danger. And it doesn't do it with words. Interesting. You know, one of the things I do when I do seminars and things and I have people do the 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 deep breathing, I ask them to connect with their their higher power if it's no matter who it is or if it's themselves, that's okay too, and ask for what they need in that moment. I used to always I, you know, cause I'm a control freak. So my, I, I'm organized. My brother, Sam, a control freak. We'll put it that way, <laughs> but I would always want certain things that I thought I needed. And when I learned to let go and kind of let God take it forward, just give me what I need. And then on my exhale, I would ask that all toxins in my mind, body, and soul yep. be let go. Saying those words on top of the breath and the, the changes happening within me, from a from a spiritual level made me feel more connected and not alone and hopeful as well. And I would imagine that that has something to do with body chemistry as well. Beautiful. Just to add to what you're saying, you said something really important. You said not alone. Mm-hmm. I think what happens as caregivers is that we end up feeling alone, like it's all on us mm-hmm. or nobody understands mm-hmm. or I'm not good enough. And what happens when we can shift out of survival state mm-hmm. in social engagement, that's where we can feel we're part of a common community. Mm-hmm. We're not alone. There's mm-hmm. lots of people that struggle with chronic illness as supporters or as victims of it. And so it's important to realize that we really are part of a larger community and to reach out for that support. Mm-hmm. We're not alone. Mm-hmm. But when you're in, when we're in one of our survival states, A, there's always an enemy because there's a threat. And B, we have a tendency to take care of that all by ourselves. Exactly. Now, one thing I want to mention, because when we were talking, I put up a picture of the belly breath, and it shows somebody, you know, laying prone, you don't have to be laying down to do this. Like, like you said, you can be in the car, you can be behind a counter, you can be at your desk, you can be standing in front of somebody. And no one's really going to know. Maybe you've got the jitters before you have to do a presentation and you can go ahead and calm yourself down. Maybe it's working with a child who is having a a temper tantrum or is really scared about something. You can sit down and breathe with them and teach them this. All ages can apply this and all stages. So even somebody with dementia, a lot of times people think, well, you know, they, they're not teachable. They'll, they'll never remember. And that may be true to a point, but people mirror one another also. Mm-hmm. And so they will pick up on what you're doing, just like when you think you're in a, in a good mood and you're going in, but you know, inside you're not, and you have your separate wife smile on, and yet you're all agitated inside. A person with dementia is reading that agitation in all your nonverbals. Absolutely. And they a lot of times mirror it back, and then we point the finger at them when they were fine before we walked into the room. So with breath, you can do the same thing. You talked about with, um, maybe they wouldn't remember, is if you breathe together with uh, your loved one, mm-hmm is there's muscle memory in Mm -hmm. breathing in the belly or breathing humming or sighing, letting go, letting go, Mm -hmm. that that the body holds on to. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not in the mind, but the body has a memory of it. So 
when say you go back again and say, okay, let's breathe a certain way together, the body will have that retention. And this also is creating new neural pathways in the brain. Just like when you mentioned the John Jingleheim Smith, you know, <laughs> your father, he, he remembered that and yeah. went, went back. And I think there's so many of those subtle things that we just, we don't appreciate the power of them mm-hmm. and the importance of them. Well, you said something else that really triggered, uh, 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 I want to respond to that because you said it beautifully. You said that a lot of times, maybe people with Alzheimer's or other chronic illnesses might be picking up our our Mm -hmm. anxiety, and then suddenly they're feeling anxious or upset or impatient or scared. They don't understand it. And... Then, then we end up having to blame them. Why are you like this? But the actual neuroscience concept of that is called co-regulation. Through mirror neurons, which are in the brain, we literally can begin to empathically feel another person's experience. Mm-hmm. So if I'm, if I'm in mm-hmm. social engagement and I'm calm and grounded and present, the person I'm with will be much more likely to experience that too, almost like um, it's a positive infection. But it can reverse. If I go into a room and somebody's really, um, they're really in a state of hyperarousal or they're, they're dysregulated in some way, it could dysregulate me unless mm-hmm. I'm very conscious about what state I'm in. So I wanted to support what you said about that because I think it's really important that we can maybe, another way of supporting people is for us to stay in social engagement when they're not. And again, if we want to reduce their stress, we have to produce ours. Exactly. I think a lot of times we don't, we always look to point the finger at someone else instead of looking within in terms of, you know, how, how do we fix this situation? Because we'd rather have them put the work into it. But breathing is something we all do. And I mean, even the, the instructions that you just gave us, it's quite simple to do. I mean, you can put your hand on your belly and you can see, are you breathing deeply? You know, is there a difference there? Um, You can feel it in your, in your muscles. If you do it a few times, you're, you're going to feel a sense of a relief and centeredness. I know I have, I can't believe our, our time is just about up already. Things go so fast. Is there, is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of why breath practices are beneficial and practical? Actually, I'd like to say, I would like to add, um, I talked about two breaths. Lori talked mm-hmm. about um, the belly breath, mm-hmm. slow. There's another breath that's, that's also important that I use a lot, and I've used a lot all over the world when I'm in situations that might even feel literally dangerous. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that is, um, and, and the neuroscience I'll be quick about. As Every time I inhale, there's a little bump mm-hmm. of sympathetic nervous system, which is hyperarousal, mm-hmm. and that's normal. Normal. And when I exhale, there's a little bump of parasympathetic nervous system, okay, or social engagement. Okay. So when I breathe in, sympathetic. When I breathe out, parasympathetic. So if I breathe in three and breathe out double, I'm much longer in parasympathetic or what we're also naming social engagement. So that's one of the breaths I use a great deal when I'm in a moment in real time where I'm experiencing, where I can feel my body shift into one of the survival states, Mm -hmm. is that I shift in. Nobody ever knows you're breathing that. Mm 
-hmm. Nobody ever knows you're doing it. I've done it when I had a helmet and, and all sorts of protective gear. I breathe in and then I breathe out more. Double. Double. Yeah. So I want to share that as a second breath that has a very positive impact in real time mm -hmm. within a minute. Okay. And so one way of, of looking at that breath is like if you did it with us, it would be inhale, two, three, exhale, two, three, four, five, six. Inhale, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You always want to do what's a comfortable count, yep. Yep. but that's also, we call that a sleep breath. So if you can't sleep at night, that's a wonderful breath to help you to go into parasympathetic dominance and fall asleep easier. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because sleep is a huge problem oh, for all people with dementia as well as their care partners. So, you know, that worry and that that craziness that, that keeps us preoccupied and doesn't let us let go of our day. Um, so that that is wonderful. Gosh, I, I could talk to you guys all day about this because I know uh, with the work that you do, there's so much more. Uh, to be able to to tell us any final remarks that you want to add before we give people your contact information and tell them to go buy your book. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm just going to say we have a lot of different practices and a lot of more of the neuroscience. I, I just you know, basically touched on it, but a lot more in our book so that hopefully people will be able to use that book as a resource for themselves and for other people. And you do a lot of presentations to all different types from, from yep. kids to healthcare to just, yes. you know, everybody off the street uh, to those <laughs> in crisis. I mean, breath yes. applies to everybody. So no one's excluded right. you know, from being yeah. able to tap into this, which is, which is absolutely wonderful. So people can get your book, Breath is Life, by going to breathlogic.org. They can also email you at info at breathlogic.org. You're on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as well, and Amazon. And so it's going to be hard not to find you. You also do some some retreats and stuff. And I saw on uh, your site that you also have one coming up in Guatemala. So if people want to learn this stuff and, and roll it into a vacation and get with like-minded people, that's also an opportunity as well. Yeah, we have a couple coming up also in Arkansas outside of Hot Springs. Mm -hmm. Posted yet, but it will be up soon. Mm -hmm. Okay, wonderful. Well, I appreciate the work that you guys do and taking the time to spend with us today. I think we have given our audience a lot of great, useful tips and a lot of hope about finding that calmness and teaching people how to care better, not only for themselves, but but others. So thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lori. We appreciate what you do. Thank you. To our audience, I hope you like, click, and share this show. I think it's very powerful. This is not something that is just trending today. This is something you can use each and every day throughout your life, and every single person around the world can apply as well. We all breathe. It's not going away. It's not changing. So apply it and, and learn to make your life better by just breathing a little bit different. Bye now. 
Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.